0: been in Philippians for half a year and we said that the theme of Philippians is joy in fact what we said was it wasn't just joy it's what we would call transcendent joy and we've talked a lot about that And the, the irony in all of this that we've hammered home every week is that it was written by a guy named Paul and and you're probably familiar with Paul and the reason that it's ironic is it's a book that's theme is joy written by a guy who's in prison so this is not written by a guy who just won the lottery or, you know, just got, uh, just graduated from college and just got the, the job of his dreams. This is not uh, written by a guy who, uh, where everything is going just the way he planned and, and the way he hoped. This is a guy who is incarcerated. This is a guy who is in jail, who did not plan to be there and I'm sure did not want to be there. And yet the, the theme to the book is joy. And it should make us sit up a little bit and say, hmm, Right? That's weird. That, that's odd that somebody in, in prison uh, would write about joy. We've kind of talked a little bit about Paul's history. We mentioned that 30 years before this book was written, Paul was a Jewish Pharisee. He was a uh, leader among the Jews. He, it, that would have meant that he was powerful. Uh, it would have meant that he was f- uh, pretty rich that he was highly respected in his community. And uh, above all of that, we also know that Paul hated Jesus Christ with an absolute passion, hated him to his core. Now, now we don't really know um, if Paul ever met Jesus, Uh, before the crucifixion. It's entirely possible uh, he might have been there and heard the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know. All we know is this, that once Christ is crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven, Paul just hates Jesus. And he's pretty sure that Jesus is a false prophet who's literally leading people away from God, which would mean leading them to hell. And so Paul believes that he's doing God a huge favor by hating Christians, by persecuting Christians, by by harassing them and them them and, and driving them from their homes and out of Jerusalem and having some of them put in prison and separated from their families and, and even some of them put to death. Paul was positive that even as he was uh, persecuting Christians that God was in heaven like going, yeah, way to go, man. You know, Paul, you get a fist bump when we get into heaven. Uh, but that's not exactly the way it worked. Now, we know Paul was traveling to Damascus one time, going there to persecute Christians. And, and on that trip, Uh, He has a little come to Jesus meeting, right? Jesus is up in heaven, uh, seated on the throne. Is like, that's it. And he comes down and has a little meeting with Paul. And uh, Paul goes blind and goes into Damascus. And, you know, eventually um, at the time, the the Christians didn't want to have anything to do with him and the Jews wanted to kill him. Uh, He eventually, we we think, goes away to Arabia for a few years where he basically relearns the entire Old Testament around the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, He eventually comes back is embraced by the church, uh, becomes a leader, goes on a couple of, of missionary trips, ends up in Philippi, proclaims the gospel, plants a church, trains some leaders. And then after he's been there for a while, he, one day, you know, they, they kind of come down to the church service and Paul's there, he's like, I'm going to teach one last time. And he's got his, you know, his bags packed. And they're like, dude, what's going on? And he says, well, I'm going I'm to go to Thessalonica. I'm going to go to another town and I'm going to do there what I did here. I'm going to tell them about Jesus. And I'm going to lead some people to Christ and train up some elders and leaders and start a church. And and what's what's interesting is that uh, the the church in Philippi did, decided, you know, we're gonna we're gonna keep sending we're gonna send you money and we're gonna we're gonna support you as a missionary. And you're gonna go travel to other places and meet people we'll probably never meet in this lifetime. But we want to be a part of that. We want to we want to support that. Fast forward 11 years and Paul is in a Roman prison. He's uh, chained to guards 24/7. He's probably under house arrest because of the fact that he had appealed to Caesar. We know that that was an option and and probably likely. And what that would mean is if you could afford it, um, you could basically rent a house and be under house arrest while you were awaiting uh, your appeal. Now, to be in this house, it also meant that you were uh, chained to guards uh, 24-7. You could never leave that house. But the Philippians were sending Paul funds. And these funds, we believe, allowed him to live in this house. And the great thing about it was Paul could never leave the house, but anyone could come to the house. Anyone could come and people could bring their friends and they could hear the gospel. And this is exactly what's going on. And so Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. Now, he can't leave the house. He can't go just wherever he pleases. He couldn't go to church on, on Sunday. You know, probably many of us, we drove to church this evening, didn't give it a second thought how amazing it was that, you know, we could leave our house and we could drive down a road and go to church. We didn't really probably walk in here totally in awe of how awesome it is not, not to be like Paul in prison. But, but Paul couldn't do that. Paul couldn't go to church. He couldn't go visit his friends. He couldn't say, hey, let's, you know, hang out at Starbucks. And this is a guy who couldn't go to Grow Group, no privacy ever. And uh, many of us would probably think that's a guy who ought to be discouraged, probably complaining and, you know, legitimately depressed and yet Paul is filled with with joy not just joy but a a transcendent joy because God was not in prison and the gospel was not in prison and 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 God was still sovereign And, and and Paul still belonged to Jesus and if if Jesus wanted Paul out of prison Paul would be out in a second Paul knows that because Paul's been in prison before and had Jesus get him out of prison And so he's filled with joy. And over the last uh, 26 weeks, we have kind of gone through this uh, book verse by verse. Today, I want to break it down into chapters. And what I want to do, if that's possible, is just kind of give you one big theme that stuck out to me and many of us as we went through this. So we're going to just start with chapter one. And in chapter one, we're going to say that the the big theme that Paul gives us right off the top is this idea of joy in partnership. And uh, starting at the very beginning of the book, he says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So he's writing from Rome and he's writing to the church in Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, and I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he links in the very first chapter, right in the very first uh, couple of verses, this idea of joy and partnership. Now you may be familiar with the word partnership there, it's actually the Greek word koinonia, and it has uh, two big ideas to it. Uh, One is to share something in common, and another is to to participate in something together. So uh, sometimes it's uh, translated as fellowship, sometimes it's partnership. Um, even participation at times these were a group of people who shared something in common even though they had never met even though the romans had never met the philippians they shared a common savior a common faith a common doctrine a common holy spirit they were part of the same spiritual family and they shared a common gospel but this word koinonia doesn't just mean to share something it means to participate which is what Paul's saying here, because Paul didn't just share the same gospel with them, they labored in it together. The Philippians were not spectators. When when they came to church, they got involved. They got involved in ministry. They got, as we said, in the trenches with Paul, in the trenches of ministry. And we know some of the people that that Paul's thinking about. He's probably thinking about Lydia and her family. Uh, Lydia being the first convert uh, in, in Philippi. He probably was thinking about the demon-possessed girl that was uh, set free, uh, maybe the jailer in his family, uh, Clement was probably in there, uh, Euodia, who we talked about a few weeks ago, and Suntuke, those two awesome women uh, that, you know, he probably was thinking of, and, and people he'd introduced to Jesus, and probably people he had baptized, and, and people that he just really loved and cared for, and these, these people had the gospel in common and they, they started a church together and none of them were spectators. They, they worshiped together and they got together and they prayed together and they, they would go out and share the gospel in their community together and they would serve one another and they did life and they suffered. We know that they suffered also for their ministry. Now, 11 years later in 800 miles away and they are still bringing joy to Paul's heart every time he thinks of them. It's just like Paul's in prison and he's chained to a guard and he thinks of them. And you know he's just like, "Oh man, every time I think of them, I just I love them because doing ministry together creates a powerful bond. Uh, And it produces, I think what Paul's saying is a unique kind of joy that God has for us that we don't experience anywhere else. And I've certainly found that to be true, and I'm sure that you have if you've been involved in ministry at all, that that doing ministry together with other people, getting in the trenches together creates a a bond and a very unique joy between us and and others. Uh, I mean, I think about before I was at Gateway uh, decades ago, Uh, I was a youth pastor, and I worked with a lot of people, a lot of staff who helped the ministry there. And now, you know, 25 years later, I still think of them, and just thinking of them brings me joy. Actually, some of them go here, and some of them are actually even on staff. And every time I see them, we have a, we have a shared history. We have a shared being in the trenches together that brings tremendous joy to me. Uh, I think about the Gateway staff that I've, I've worked with over the years, and not all of them who are here anymore. I think of Pastor Bill and his wife, who uh, defected to Hawaii, uh, but we still talk. Uh, every week and um you know every time I get it it will be the middle of the day and I'll get a text from Bill and just it brings joy to my heart every time I talk to him every time I talk to his wife because we were in the trenches together for years and it built a bond and, and, and it created a unique joy amongst us over the years at Gateway I think I've I've worked with well over 125 deacons and one of the things I've noticed about deacons is uh, you, can just, you can be a person in the church that I know and then if you become a deacon, like, I, will, I, I will never look at you the same way, in a, in a good way. Never look at you the same again because there's something about uh, you know, praying together and working through issues and meetings together and just the work that they do. And, and granted, a lot of it's all the food that we eat together, but there's something about doing that that creates a unique joy and I, I never forget Uh, anyone who served on the deacon board and when I see them it's just again it's it's special it's different there's a joy there Um, over the years uh, I've had the opportunity to go to Nicaragua a few times Um, been there eight times going there a ninth time here in about five weeks and again each time that I've gone I've been able to work with a different team of people I'm gonna put this here because you can barely see that this is my first trip in 2010, uh, a while ago. And this is just a small part of the team. And we were in the back of an old uh, Toyota pickup truck that literally, I, we just about destroyed, didn't we, Mike? By the time we were done, and we were on our way out to this, uh, to this town out in the middle of nowhere called Cristo Rey, very bumpy ride. I, and still, again, every time I think of these people, I, I bring so much joy to my heart that we serve together. Uh, this is a couple of years ago, I think. Again, Mike, Mike's in almost every picture because Mike's been on every trip that I've been on and like a gazillion more. How many times have you been to Nicaragua? I think this is 20. 20 okay coming up on 20 this was this last year and so uh, uh, last spring we went and uh, worked all day did construction all day got together in the evening after dinner and um, put together hundreds and hundreds of these goodie bags uh, that we took to kids for VBS and in the uh, schools in the area and again I mean these are the things I think of and you know whenever I run into any of these people I just there's something about being in the trenches together that changes the way that you think about them there's a there's a joy there. And I, uh, in fact, I wanted to just kind of let you in on how you could even be a little bit a part of that because we've got a team going, a team being, um, Mike and I are going uh, five weeks from tonight at midnight. And uh, we're, so we're not really sneaking into the country, but if you've been paying attention to Central America, you'll know that the past year has been a very difficult year in Nicaragua, a lot of political unrest, violence, and other stuff going on. And so we didn't feel like it was safe to take a big team of people in a big van, so Mike and I are going, and we're going to just be some boots on the ground and check some things out, and I thought maybe Mike could tell you just a little bit about what we'll be doing. Yeah, so, um, (laughs) well five weeks uh sunday the fifth of may uh we'll go to the airport in the evening and catch the red eye to houston and then into manawa on we'll arrive at midday on the Mm sixth and then uh we'll be we have a ticket to come back uh midnight this we'll be back here midnight uh the 17th so that's the plan Mm -hmm. uh we're going to be going to primarily to do two things besides scouting out and seeing what the situation is, and that is we'll be doing some construction and Bob will be teaching. So mm-hmm. that's, that's what we'll be doing. Yeah, awesome. And um, you know, there's uh, several, well, one of the big things we do in the spring trip is, is teaching. And uh, so sometimes we'll be on a construction site and people will come from the area and so maybe do a little construction in the morning, do some teaching in the afternoon. And then sometimes, and this happens, we may have people that come from all over the country, uh, pastors and leaders, and we may do two or three days of like 10 hours at a shot teaching. And um, I'll tell you what, it's a lot easier teaching for 10 hours than sitting, I think, for 10 hours. And these people come and they soak it in, and then they take everything that they're taught and they take it back to their churches and they, and they teach it there. And you guys have had a lot to do with that as you've been praying for our teams and supporting our teams, and we just wanted to let you know that we are going back uh, five weeks from now um, next week we'll have some prayer cards out just some ways that you can be praying for us um, be praying for the preparation of the materials uh, we are also looking to raise about $10,000 and that money will be used for um, materials for construction costs and that kind of stuff so that we're able to go and work and not be ab- not be a burden on them financially as well so you hey, might thank you appreciate it So uh, you have a chance, even if you can't go to Nicaragua uh, in five weeks, you have a chance to be a part of that and, um, and not just that, because at, at Gateway, there are a ton of ways that you can get involved in getting in the trenches in ministry. And I guess that's a question I'd ask you, is who are you in the trenches with right now? And as a church, there are, there's a hundred ways that you could do that. Uh, we're always looking for more people to greet at the door, at worship services. Um, in fact, I always do this, I'll kinda go around and ask our staff, like, do you have any needs uh, that I can talk about? And everybody's like, oh yeah, we, well we always have needs. We, We're always looking for more musicians for the worship teams. Uh, Right now, next door, Kids Church is going on. I know that they're always looking for people who love kids and want to be a part of that. Back in the Children's Center, I know they're always, again, looking for people that God leads to work with children. Uh, Our youth ministry are always looking for people that God leads to be involved in the trenches of ministry with them. Women's ministry, men's ministry. We're always looking for uh, more grow group host homes and more grow group leaders, and on and on and on it goes. There's, There's this endless amount of ways to be involved here. The question is, What are you doing? Where are you in the trenches? And I just wanna encourage you not to miss out on the joy that could be yours. That was was chapter one and one of the big takeaways. Here's chapter two. We're gonna say chapter two is all about joy and humility. Joy and humility. So let me just read the first couple verses there for you and set the context. Paul says this, and he's speaking a little hypothetically at the beginning here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any participation, again, in the, in the spirit, if there's any affection, uh, is there any sympathy, then he says, complete my, and there's that word again, complete my what? My joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. So Paul's talking about us. He's talking about the spiritual family. He says, here's what a spiritual family should, should look like. Being in full accord and of one mind. And then he really kind of brings it together. He says, so do nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves look uh, let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others right and now here's where it's getting really heavy and we spent a lot of time here and in paul's this command going you really need to be humble you really need to put other people first and if you're like most people it feels kind of heavy and like how, you know, I want to, but how do I do that? And then he says this, have this mind among yourselves. So he's talking about us as a group. As a group, here's the mind you should have, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're in Jesus, you can do this because of what Christ has done for you. And then he turns a little corner here in uh, chapter two, And he launches into this passage that we refer to kind of as the the, the great uh, Christological passage of Philippians, possibly the entire New Testament that lays out the person of Christ for us. And he he says this, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that's a reference to uh, before the incarnation in heaven, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a a thing to be grasped. So here's how we're gonna uh, do this uh, some of the guys, uh, deacons are going to go back, and they're going to grab um, communion, and they're going to bring it forward and pass it out. And if you have a faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, even if you're not a part of our family, we invite you to go ahead and grab onto the cup and and to the the bread there and hold on to that while I talk a little bit about uh, the Savior. Uh, that has accomplished all this for us. So we often refer to this as, as Christology here and, and the great Christology passage. And so what Paul says are some really amazing things. He, first of all, he talks about Jesus existing in the form of God. And what we know is that Jesus has always, has always existed as God. He didn't, he didn't become God at any point. Uh, it wasn't that as some cults teach, even some some. Christian churches teach today, well, he was, you know, it was God and then he, and then he wasn't God on earth and then he, he became God again. He didn't become God at birth. He didn't become God at baptism. He didn't become God at the transfiguration. He always has been God. The way we often put it is, Jesus is co-eternal, co-essential, and co-equal with the Father. And what we mean is this, that he's co-eternal. Christ had no beginning. He uh, has existed from eternity past. Uh, he has always been God we say that uh, he is coessential; that you can't pull him out of the Trinity and have God anymore uh, he always has been God is essential and is co-equal with the father and so he talks about this idea who though he's in the form of God he says this did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and sometimes we read that and we think what Paul's talking about is intellectual grasping but that's not what he's he's talking about here He's talking about Jesus grasping on to his authority, onto his rights. What it means is this. See, we live in a world typically where maybe if we, we have a job, we work for a corporation, we want to climb that ladder, right? Wherever we're working, we want to climb the corporate ladder. And one of the ways that we measure that we're climbing the corporate ladder is um, every time we go up a rung, there's more people below us and fewer people above us. And so as we climb the corporate ladder, right, there are more people that we get to tell what to do and there are few, fewer people who get to tell us what to do. And that's often how we think of, of, of what we do with authority and power. Jesus took a very different approach. Jesus literally turned the whole thing upside down. In the incarnation when he came to this earth he had all the rights of God and the privileges of God because he was God but he refused to cling to them he he refused to demand them you don't see Jesus walking around walking up to people you know pointing a finger at them and saying you know worship me now or, or give to me now or sing to me sing me a song right now he doesn't do that instead he turns it upside down he humbles himself and he becomes the servant The word I like to use is self humbled. Jesus self humbled. He laid aside his rights. Nobody humbled Jesus. He laid aside his rights and privileges and he served us. Verse seven, but he emptied himself. Now theologians have have, have argued for centuries about what that means. I don't know why they argue because he actually explains it right in the verse. So let's see what he says. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So he emptied himself in several ways. He took the form of a servant. That is when he was here, uh, he was one who served others. Jesus, theologians will say, he did not exchange the form of God for the form of a slave. Instead, he displayed the glory of God in the body of a mere human, of a slave. And he lived humbly among us. Jesus was among us as a servant. Jesus was among us as one who sought us out as one who who died for our sin, as one who rose for us. He emptied himself also, he says, by being born in a a human body, in a mere human body. It's the incarnation. uh, That God, who is spirit, took on flesh or a scripture described it he 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 tented among us he literally tabernacled amongst us and and as a human he fully participated in every human experience Jesus knows what it's like to live in a in a sinful world if you, if you ever find yourself praying to God and going God you just don't understand you know? Jesus like I totally understand what it's like to live in a sinful world in a, in a broken world Jesus experienced pain like we do, uh, hunger like we do. Jesus knew what it was like to to serve people all day and then try to go get a snack and a nap and not be able to do it and minister to people all night. He knew what it was like to be exhausted and and to be rejected. And he knew what it was like to to have conflict and live in a corrupt society and and, and political corruption, right? We wouldn't know anything about that, but he knew about that. And religious corruption and to live in, in just pure hate, and and pride and it goes on it says this and being found in human form as he lived among us he humbled himself he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross so we like to say you know that you and I can and will be humbled often. Uh, we, uh, we are humbled by our sin at times. I mean, how many times have you sinned, and then it's so embarrassing, it's so humiliating, right? We, we are humbled by our failures. We are humbled by our circumstances at times we can't get out of. We are humbled sometimes by other people, Sometimes people say that their, their, uh, their health situation is humbling because they can't do what they wanna do. It feels humiliating. Uh, sometimes we're humbled by a lack of faith or a lack of love. But the only way that Jesus could ever be humbled was if he humbled himself. And if he didn't humble himself, there was no other way. Herod did not humble Jesus. Pilate did not humble Jesus. The high priest, the crowds, the soldiers, None of them humbled Jesus. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. He let go of his rights. He was born in a lowly body. He, he, he became a servant. It was his own doing. And it says that he became obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. And see, death for ordinary humans like you and I, it's a necessity. There's, there's no way around it. But for Jesus, it was actually an act of obedience. It was, a, it was a choice. It was the will of the of the Father, of the Godhead of the Trinity, that, that when we sinned, uh, that this is how they would come after us. Jesus would be the one to come down. And so he came down and but and and he submitted himself to the will of the Father. But it was his choice to obey the Father. If, if he didn't have a choice, he could not have been obedient but he was obedient even to death on a cross. And we've talked about how crucifixion was was the absolute cruelest form of execution in that day, maybe throughout all of history, painful, shameful, humiliating. It was reserved only for slaves and the worst of criminals and and non-Romans in that day. And yet Jesus chose the most humiliating way to die. He could have chosen any way to die, but he chose this way because he wanted to demonstrate something to us. He wanted to demonstrate um, not only the gravity of our sin, which we are so quick to wash over, but he also wanted to demonstrate the depth and the extent of his love, and the cross does both of those beautifully. It shows us how heinous our sin is, that it would require death in order for us to be made right with God. And it also shows us the depth of God's love, that he would go to this extent for us. What Paul paints for us in this passage is is what theologians describe as a downward movement of Christ. Again, where most of us in life are just looking to go up, 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 Jesus chose to go down, down. He came down from heaven to this pit, you know? He came out of uh, his glory into a body like ours. He went down from not just being a human but to being a a servant. And, And he went down from there to be rejected by the very people that he created. And then he went down even farther into crucifixion and down into death and down into a tomb. But we know that that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And now we have a, a reversal. It's, it's an it's astounding reversal that we'll talk about one, two, three weeks from now at Easter, right? Where, where it's, it's he, he was as low as he could get. He was in the, laying on a tombstone, and he, he rose up. He rose up, he rose out of death. He, he rose up off the, off the ground, he, he, he went out of the tomb, he appeared to, pe- to many people, he rose up into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God. It was this great reversal where he ascended and now he, is, he rules as, as king of kings and of lord of lords. In verse 10, so that at the name of, of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in other words, every created being and every tongue will confess, every being that has a tongue and can speak will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's what, I mean, that's what we, we've been doing tonight. Uh, Jesus is the name that we, we sang to tonight, that we, we praised tonight. His is the name that we, we pray in. His is the name that we, we praise when we're in here and the one that we proclaim that when we're outside of these walls. It says that one day every created being will confess. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. We choose to confess now. We choose to bow now because it makes all the difference for us in our eternity. Communion is a, is a time where we remember how it is that we, how it is that we got to this place what it is that Christ did for us. And, and when we celebrate communion, we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, scripture says that he gathered his disciples around himself, he passed out a loaf of bread and everyone took a little piece. And he said, in the future, uh, you'll get together with other Christians and you'll take a little bread and you'll pass it around and, and you'll remember me. And he said, here's what I want you to remember, that this, this bread represents my body. It'll represent my body that was broken for you, that shows you how much I love you, and the extent that I was willing to go to save you. And he says, every time that you take this, do this in remembrance of me, and so eat of the bread. Jesus also said, as often as you get together and you celebrate, pass around a cup. He said, this this cup represents his blood that was shed for us, for our redemption, for the remission of our sin. A very holy thing, a very solemn thing. He said, as often as you take it, remember my death and remember that I'm coming again for you. And so, take up the cup. chapter two is this amazing amazing passage of christology i got a a text from somebody right before church tonight and they said is there any way we can go through philippians again like starting next week (laughs) i said well you can Um, but what it's just been so awesome um chapter three so let me just say this all right then next we're pretty quick Um, but it, it might occur to you as you see this. So, uh, chapter three. I'm just going to summarize this way. Paul says there is joy and rejoicing, and it, it might start to feel like, all right, Pastor Bob's down to the last two points of the entire series, and he's not even trying for a cool uh, point anymore. Uh, joy and rejoicing just sounds like he's not trying. But let me just kind of explain to you what I mean here. So, in chapter three, starts this way. Now, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In fact, let me read that again, and you can fill in the blank, right? Finally, my brothers. Rejoice, all right? Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he tells us to rejoice. He talks about that a lot in uh, chapters 3 and 4. So, what is rejoicing? I always think of rejoicing this way. As a Christian, God places his joy in you. There's a joy of your salvation. There's the joy of being in the trenches with other people. It's this, I think of it as this thing that God delivers to you and puts in you. It's in you. It's in your heart. Rejoicing is where you take the joy and you kind of get into it and you exercise it and you, you use it. So it's not just there locked up in a safe. You take it out. And you use it, you you, you exercise it with your words. To rejoice is to take the joy of the Lord and to to, put it into words, uh, into your actions, into your attitude. So it involves things like singing to God, right? So we've been rejoicing tonight. We've taken the joy God has given us and we've been expressing it to each other tonight and and to God. Uh, When we praise him for things, that's rejoicing. When we enjoy him, when we thank him, it literally means just, just to be glad and to let it come out. And in this series, we've talked a lot about two two words that feel kind of like they're the same thing, but they are not. It's the word happiness and the word joy. And I said, when you, when you open up your dictionary, you'll find a definition for happiness that's something like this. It's, it's the feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable circumstances, right? So you ace a test, and you're happy. Now, there's nothing wrong with being happy. In fact, I highly recommend it. But it's, it, it, it comes and it goes, right? Because you, you take a test that you studied for, and you pass it, and you're like, woohoo! hoo But you probably have another test coming. Right? So, and then you start all you start all over again. You know, happiness is like you know acing a test. Happiness is a sunny day. I'll admit, I'm a sucker for a sunny day, and and I go out and oh, yesterday was awesome. I was so happy. I'm not gonna be that happy tomorrow, if you've seen, in fact, I don't think I'm gonna be happy for the next 14 days. I'll have joy, I don't know that I'm gonna have happiness. Happiness is maybe good health, you know, for a day. You woke up today and I'm I'm not hurting or a victory, but joy is different. Joy doesn't have anything to do with your circumstances at all. Joy is tied to a person. Joy comes from Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, and those things don't ever change. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on your, your health, on your wealth, on how many Facebook friends you have, or whether or not you're incarcerated, as Paul would say, because he's in prison and Paul's full of joy. Again, I don't know that you would be happy, but you could have joy. And Paul says, says this, to, to write the same things is no trouble. Paul says, you know, I've written this a 100 times. I've written rejoice, 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 rejoice. I've preached it, I've said it. Paul's just saying some things are so fundamental to our faith they deserve repeating again and again and again. And here's one of the things that I get out of this. Sometimes we think rejoicing, singing, praising God, all that, is like a little extra nice thing on the side. What I see Paul saying is man, it is absolutely essential to your spiritual health. He describes it this way, he says that it, it's, it's safe for you. I love that idea, it's, it's safe. When you have a rejoicing heart, it has a way of, of clarifying life, of, of clarifying priorities in and, and what's really important in life. In fact, a little later on in chapter three, he says this. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul, by the way, lost everything. Power, fame, prestige, all of that for the sake of Christ. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of, of, of all things. And, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, Paul says, I lost everything else, but I got Jesus, this is a heart that is rejoicing, that has clarity of mind, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, uh, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, we spent weeks and weeks talking about that idea, but I love what Paul says here, he says, he says, it is safe for you, See, Paul knows how important rejoicing is and Paul also knows how easy it is to get sidelined from, from rejoicing. So here's a little something I I, I remember. When I put a series together, I I don't write out everything for every sermon, but I do lay out a lot of the big ideas for the entire series. And I I can tell you this, I remember how beautifully it lined up that at the beginning of the year we were talking about this passage. And if you were here, you you might remember, you might recall, I said it's a brand new year, it's 2019, and God's will for you this year is that you rejoice. God's will for you this year is that you really enjoy Christ and rejoice. But here's the thing, Paul knows that there are some things that could sideline you from rejoicing you might get too busy in 2019 and not take time to rejoice I mean that's just a possibility and I saw a lot of people in the congregation going oh yeah that could happen but that is not gonna happen to me right like there's no way that's gonna happen or do you remember uh, right before Christmas we talked about pondering were you here we talked about the pondering heart I had so many of you come to me and say I want to be that person I'm gonna have a pondering heart in 2019, right? Have you had a pondering heart in 20? Did you know that we are basically a quarter of the way through 2019? Right, it's just flying by. Do you have a pondering heart? Paul knew, you know, he would have said, some of you are gonna face some hard stuff this year, you're gonna be tempted to complain and gripe and be anxious and question God's goodness. That's why you need a rejoicing heart. A rejoicing heart is safe. It protects you. There's a thousand ways it protects you. But here's a few that we've noticed. It, it protects your attitude. Have you ever noticed that it's hard to have a bad, stinky attitude when you're praising God? It's hard to do both of those at once. I don't know that it's impossible, but it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard to have really bad negative thoughts when you're rejoicing in the Lord. It, it, uh, uh, rejoicing heart protects your relationships. It's hard to treat people wrong when you're rejoicing in the good things that God has done for you. Uh, it's, it, it protects us uh, from being anxious. Again, it's hard to rejoice in all the good things God does and be anxious at the same time. It, it's safe for us. Uh, It protects the decisions that we make. It it protects how we handle success. Right? When we rejoice, it reminds us, not to get too proud, it reminds us of where our success comes from. It also protects us in in defeat. It it protects how we pray. It, It protects our relationships, our marriage. I, it protects uh, our temptation level. It, it's hard to be tempted to sin and wander from God when you're thanking God for all the great things that He's done. See how incongruous that is? So He says it's, it's safe for you. It's safe for how you set priorities and your schedule and how you worship God because rejoicing moves our focus. It moves our focus from our circumstances to our eternal, sovereign, and good God. Here's my question Are you safe tonight? Are you safe? Are you rejoicing in the Lord? And then point four, and I I don't know how I can apologize for this. Uh, Point three is rejoicing, uh, joy and rejoicing, and point four is basically it's basically just um, have more joy. (laughs) Rejoice more. All right, and I and just to be fair, all right, just to be fair, uh, I think I'm. I think I'm filling out the text nicely here. Let's look in chapter four, verse four. If you think about chapter four, you have to think of verse four. Rejoice in the Lord. Got a couple words for you. Rejoice in the Lord. What? Yeah. Rejoice in the Lord always. What's the next word? Again. So I love this. This is, this is so awesome. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So Paul, like when he says always, that, doesn't that cover everything? Like, I think it covers everything. And then he's like, well, wait, one more time. Let me just say it again. Again, I'm gonna say rejoice. Let your reasonable spirit uh, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, always and never, always and never always rejoice and never worry always rejoice always rejoice because and we could say a lot of things about God let me just say two that I think when you put them together it's a pretty great thing he says you can always rejoice because God is always sovereign and God is always good he's always sovereign what does that mean that God is in charge and that nothing can frustrate his will that anything that God sets out to do guess what that is what's going to happen we have a God who is, is sovereign and we have a God who is good. And that's where you get verses like, you know, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. Right? That's how you get verses like that. Because God loves you and God is always good. And guess what? God has the power to back it up. And nothing can ever stop God from backing up his love for you. So always rejoice because God is sovereign and God is good. Always. And never worry. Why don't we need to worry? Because God is sovereign and God is good yeah yeah it's not rocket science we never have to worry because god is always sovereign and god is always in charge and god is always good so you never have to worry because god is he's only going to do good things and he is absolutely in control so when times are good we can rejoice when times are tough we can rejoice and and talk to god he is always there always able always good when I think about all this, I think of a story in Acts chapter 16. This is a story about Paul and Silas, and they just happen to be in Philippi. I have to tell you something that when I was, I, and this happens to me sometimes, I'll write, a, I'll write a sermon, and I'll be preaching a sermon, and in the middle of preaching something, I'll learn something. And it occurred to me at the nine o'clock service something that I hadn't really noticed before. So I wanted to, to, to close with this story. So you have Paul and you have Silas, and they're in Philippi. So this is... Uh, this is eleven years earlier, and uh, the, the short of the story is there was a demon possessed girl, and they cast out the demon, and there were, she was a slave, and the owners they lost some income when the demon was driven out, and they're really mad, so they take Paul and they take Silas, and they drag him into the city square, and they accuse them of disturbing the peace, which was actually against the law, and uh, so they they got a mob and they beat them up and then they threw them in prison and they chained them to the ground so there's Paul and Silas and they're in prison for for proclaiming you know Jesus for for casting a demon out of a girl and they're bleeding and they're bruised and they're wounded and they are chained to the ground and what are they doing in Acts chapter 16 it tells us this and about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them because they couldn't do anything else. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. Right? So this is what occurred to me. I hadn't thought about it. When Paul writes 11 years later to not worry about anything and pray about anything, to rejoice always and, and, and to pray about your problems, I, it occurred to me, like, he did this 11 years earlier. This is exactly what he did. So Paul, I, I imagine Paul's just going, I remember when I was in Philippi, I remember I was in a tough spot, and I remember what I did. I rejoiced. And I prayed. So Paul's like, this is not hypothetical stuff. I've actually been there. I've actually done it. And, and then I love what happens next. It says there was a great earthquake so the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And I, I hate to kind of simplify the passage to over-spiritualize it, but the thing I always remember when I read this passage is when you're in a tough spot and when you rejoice in the Lord and when you trust God and you don't worry and you pray, God opens doors. Like here he literally opened prison doors and he opens opportunities for us. We can rejoice in the Lord always, even in difficult, disappointing, challenging times. Here's my question. Where do you need to do that today? Is there something right now in your heart that you are stressed over, worried over, anxious over, complaining over, whining over, sorry, that you should be talking to God over? And rejoicing. Philippians, here's how Paul closes the book. He says this, Greet every saint in, in Christ Jesus. Uh, the brothers who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. I imagine Paul winks when he says that part, because it's really cool. Especially those of Caesar's household. What Paul says is the gospel is infiltrating the Roman Empire. From his prison cell and history will prove that in fact that is what happened until it took over the Empire in a prison cell like if you were God how would you overtake a country I wouldn't do it from a prison cell but what Paul is saying is this Paul is saying you know what every shift a new soldier comes in They take take the uh, chains off the old one and put it on a new one. And I imagine Paul says, you know, every time they chain me to a new guard, I just pray a prayer for that guy. Because who was chained to who? That guy couldn't get away from Paul. He had to listen to Paul pray, praise God, share the gospel with people. And what happened was soldiers were getting saved. And government workers were coming in and getting saved. And they were sharing Christ with other people in Caesar's household and they were getting saved, and what Paul's saying to the Philippians is, you know what's really cool about this? You guys, you guys helped this happen. It was because of the Philippians that Paul had the money necessary to be in a house, because if he had been in a dungeon, none of this would have happened, and so Paul says, I've People come into the house that you paid for, and I share the gospel. People get saved because you're you're supporting this. And they're they're taking it into Caesar's household. I just love this. The Philippians had supported all of this. And though the Christians in Rome had never met the Philippians, there was a love between them. They had become spiritual family. And so what Paul says literally is, as he closes a letter, the believers in Rome who you've never met they just say hi they're just they're just waving to you they just want to say we love you they want to say thank you it made me think a lot about uh, uh, again um, in in Nicaragua uh, every time that I go there and get to be with people uh, I think this is on my first trip uh, three kids that we met in Cristo Ray uh, clothed fed and uh, many of you Though you weren't there, you clothed and fed them because you were praying for the team and you were supporting the team and you may have very well paid for the food that we gave to those kids. That's kind of what Paul's talking about. Last time I was there, this is uh, Pastor Dennis and Omar. Um, I was able to spend days teaching them Uh, from uh, the Gospel of Luke. You may have heard of that. And then uh, I sent them off with their materials and they've been teaching their churches in the book of Luke ever since. And many of you, that was because of you. These are some kids in a public school that we went to last time, as we often do. Took them notebooks and pencils and crayons and balloons and soccer balls and all that. And many of you, you had a part in that. Uh, This was a a bunch of uh, leaders from the area that I spent two days, 12 hours a day training. Uh, They wanted to pose in this picture and they wanted you to see this picture. They wanted you to see it for a reason. Um, These are uh, three young men at the farm. Uh, They were uh, learning Bible, uh, learning how to weld, and learning how to do woodwork so that they would be able to go out and support themselves. Again, you had a part in that. And my favorite picture is the one you probably really can't see. This is a couple years ago, and um, leaders had come from all over the country. Some of them uh, rode on public buses for two days to get there. We spent two days teaching. And at the end of the teaching time, they asked if it would be possible to take a picture of them waving to you. So they are literally waving. They said, we want to wave to Gateway. So whenever I'm there, this is what happens. We always end up having these conversations, right? They'll say like, do you have any pictures of people at Gateway? And I'm like, oh, I have Facebook. Of course I do. And so I have pictures of you and I'll show them pictures and they just love looking at pictures of you and they'll look at pictures of the church and they, they love you and appreciate it. And they'll say, tell people at Gateway that we love them. Tell people that we care about them. Even though you've never met them, you have blessed them. You have fed them. You have clothed them. You have have blessed their kids. You have taught their leaders who have gone and taught their churches. You have have preached in their churches. You have blessed them. And here's the thing, they love you for it. They've never met you, but they love you for it. And they wanna wave to you and say hi. And that's kind of what's happening in the passage here. And then Paul says this, he ends where he started. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit, right? That's how Paul started the letter. We are, uh, we are saved by grace. We are sustained by grace. And we are able to be a blessing to others, both sitting next to us, at home, at school, and on the other side of the world, by the grace of God. Paul says, as you go, go in the joy. Go in the joy of the Lord. So here's how we're gonna close this off. You can't just say, go in the joy of the Lord and, Go in the joy of the Lord. That'll never work. So we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song. We're gonna sing holy, holy, holy. And uh, then we're going to have um, a baptism, right? Because what could be better than a baptism? So let me pray for us. We're gonna sing and close with the baptism.